Have your Bibles turn with me to the book of Colossians. You may have heard the name Frank Abagnale Jr. before. Frank is known as the greatest con artist in the history of America. In the story that you, you, may, you may have seen pictures of him or you may have um, watched the movie, catch you if you can. He doesn't look too much like Leonardo DiCaprio who played him in the Spielberg movie. But the story goes that he pulled off tremendous, a tremendous number of cons in his lifetime. And one of the things that he did was that he realized if you just had the right outfit, that you could get away with a lot of things. Like he'd gotten himself a uniform for Con Am and he ended up riding on planes over a million miles in his, when he was young. He got the right lab coat and he ended up being conceived, perceived as a doctor in such a way that they say for nine months he was the attending doctor at uh, a pediatrician doctor in the general hospital in um, near Brigham Young University. He actually staged himself as a professor at Brigham Young University. You can keep going. One of, my, one of my favorites that he pulled off is that he found a security guard's outfit and then he went to the place where they deposited funds and what he did was he put a little sign that said um, that this is broken, just give the funds to the security guard. So they handed him those funds. He was a forger, extremely successful at it until he was caught, ended up going through multiple prisons, internationally terrible story on that part of it. But later on, I've heard him speak in a couple different settings. And what he would later say is that he said, you know, now that I, he works for the government, he helps to, um, for the FBI, and he helps to create non-forgeable documents and non-forgeable, specifically, currencies. He said, really, I make far more money today, honestly, than I ever did when I was a con. And I want us today, as we continue through the series through the book of Colossians, it's been fantastic for me to study Colossians with you. To be honest, this morning's message, the passages that we're going to look at, there's about a hundred messages you could preach from these, these passages. They're beautiful. There's so much truth that's in them. But, but one of the themes that we're going to see today that flows out of the book of Colossians and the verses that we're going to look at is that, is that we can trade the dress that we're wearing. Last week, we focused in on some ugly things, things that, that really don't mark a healthy person. They, they mark a person or describe a person who's really caught in the, the deceptions of the deceiver. But we can put on the clothing of the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the kind of life that God's designed for us to live. And if we do that, I believe that we will experience the kind of blessing that the, that the Lord has designed for you and I to experience. And some of that is going to lead us to the kind of unity that it could only come from individuals who have committed their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. The description is that together, you and I can be one, not because of the fact that we're all the same. In fact, if you look around, we're, we're different, different ages, different experiences, different stories. But when we come together under the same name, that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can experience the kind of unity that allows us to thrive together in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the master of disguise, when he trade, trades it in, is able to experience the kind of fullness that comes from just getting it right. And today we're going to look at what it looks like when we get it right and how we can thrive in the midst of that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we've been studying in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. 
And in the description that we see, we're going to see this idea that our virtues can trump our vices, that we can experience the fullness of the life of Christ. And when we do that, that we find ourselves unified together. He says this in verse 11. He says, here, now he's talking to the church, and he's saying, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. I, I love that description. And it helps us to understand that we have been called together in one body, not, um, not because of our similarities, but we've been called together because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not known by our differences. This is really cool when you look at it. It breaks down barriers. Tons of barriers are broken down by understanding Christ. The racial barriers broken down, Greek or Jew, the religious barriers, circumcised and uncircumcised, cultural barriers, barbarian and Scythian. It's fascinating to me that this description, if you knew that culture that day, they got it instantly when they said this, that, that a barbarian was from a different place, a different culture that was separate. They used a different language there. And the Scythian, that, that last phrase is actually describing a very specific people group that were considered the dirtiest of the dirty. They were the least liked group of people. When I traveled to Romania on a mission trip years and years ago, the missionary that we worked with, this guy's amazing. His name's Ray Abadan. He's super gifted, loves the Lord. But as I got to know them in his history, he grew up under communism in Romania. And one of the things that I noticed, I was preaching at his church, one of the things they talked about whenever he referenced the gypsies in his culture when he'd say that word gypsy, you can almost just see him cringe. It's like a Browns fan talking about a Pittsburgh fan, you know? <laughs> that, that you could see it as he described it. And it was weird, but it hit something that I've seen in other cultures that I've been in. When we were in the Bahamas, there was another island, another island that people, when they spoke of people from that island, that they just cringed when they talked about it. And what, what fascinates me about what he's talking about, when he's talking about the breaking down, you guys know that this breaking down of those dividing lines is happening in Berea as we speak, right? But as, the, as the football players are all coming from around the country, that they, they trade the, the colors from the teams that they came from. Now, I'm going to confess right now, it's probably oversharing right now, but when Baker Mayfield took the flag and stuck it on the Ohio State, oh, did that hurt anyone here? It broke my heart, shattered my heart. Now, I love Baker Mayfield now because he's my quarterback, right? So something happened. Now, he changed uniforms. And when he did that, he now became my guy, right? And, and what happens for us in Christ, what the Apostle Paul's talking about here is he goes, when you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, when you do it this way, what happens is that the diversity of what we, who we associate with, how we connect together becomes so much more beautiful, it becomes so much more complex because of the fact that it's not because of what naturally draws us together, but it's because of him. So when they said that term, barbarians, they would have grumbled. When he would have said, slave or free, they would have said, really? But what happened in the church, and this is why the church was so confusing to, to the earliest generations in the book of Acts, they're scratching their heads because the Lord's adding, adding daily those who are being saved. And they didn't all look the same. They didn't all come from the same part of the country. That there was a diversity in the complexity of that. And Paul just labels it perfectly. He says, here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but is Christ. But Christ is all 
and he's in all. We're clothed in Christ. He's inside of us. And when we get this right, we get to experience the kind of unity that God describes for us that we can have. It was awesome. I went back to Romania a couple of years after the fact, took a team there with Ray. And as I'm interacting with them, to be honest, I was a little nervous to ever bring up anything having to do with gypsies because it was such a painful thing for him. It was so uncomfortable for me. And he says to me, I'm asking, hey, Ray, what's going on in the ministry? And he says, we actually have planted a church in the gypsy community and it's thriving. And he starts talking about people's names and he's describing it with this joy. And I'm like, Ray, what happened? Because I remember three years ago, you couldn't even say the word gypsy without it hurt. And he said, we just really realized that these were our brothers and sisters. And I, and I don't know for you, church, who that is or what that looks like for you. But when you look at the barriers that have the potential of being set up amongst us, we're supposed to not be known by our differences, but be, to be known by what unifies us. And that's Christ in us. And that's Christ that's flowing through us. That's the blood of Christ that has redeemed us. And the way that Paul puts it, he's going to use this clothing language. And he's going to say to us, after he told us last week what we're supposed to get rid of. Remember, we're not supposed to conform to the pattern of this world. He's saying, you don't have anything to do with that junk. There are 11 things that he warned us. If you were here last week, look at them. They're ugly. But he says, that's not what you put on. He take that off. And then he says, put this on. He says this in verse 12, but I want you to catch in verse 12 and 14 and 15, how he describes the church when it's unified. It's awesome. He describes it as one body. And I want you to hear it in the words of the apostle Paul. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Anybody in this room ever have the pain of not being a chosen one? The dodgeball class. Oh, you rose your hands. I love it. Thank you, guys. You're joining me in this. That, that you're the last one picked for the team. That, you're, that he's saying you're God's chosen ones. Holy. That means set apart, distinct. And you're loved. You're beloved. And then he goes on to describe, and we're going to unpack these together, these descriptions of the things we ought to put on. Pick back up in verse 14, and he says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the image of a belt. It's described that way, so that you got the clothes and everything, and then you put this on on top of everything to hold it all together. And he's saying, this is the most important thing. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And I, I love the last, and be thankful. The Apostle Paul is great about adding those words. He's going to talk about it later in the text that, that thankfulness, gratitude, individuals that are grateful, uh, that, that's really what we are as Christ followers. We're people who say that it is by grace, by the grace of God go I, that he's forgiven me and set me free. That's what unifies us. It's not... Because the harmony that, that we experience does not come because we're the same, but it comes because we've been selected and chosen. We're his. Our love sets us apart. Tertullian, the early philosopher, said this about Christians. He was fascinated by them. He says, see how these Christians love one another? That he's fascinated by the fact that there's diversity that leads to unity in Christ and can change everything. We are one, bound together, one body in perfect harmony. The church does not always feel that way. But that's what 
the Apostle Paul is saying to us that we're called to be is unified because of Christ. The unity amidst diversity is powerful in our divided world. Did you see the, the word that's used in the text? It talks about perfect harmony. Now, I promise you, if you're singing with me, there's not going to be any perfect harmony. Let's just be honest. But I love the, the, the awesomeness of being in an orchestra or a symphony. And you've seen it. And what's so beautiful about the symphony when it's done right is that it's not everybody playing the same instrument. It's not everybody playing the same music, but instead every single person has a different story. Every single person has a different set and, and they often have different instruments and together when they're orchestrated together under the hands of the right conductor, what they can accomplish is what we call harmony. And it's beautiful, right? You've been there, you've experienced it. It's, it's awe-inspiring. I think that's what God designed his church to be. I think it's what the Apostle Paul is telling this church that he'd never been to. You can be that church if you understand what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This statement is a pretty clear second point this morning, and that is you and I are called together to be set apart. That, that he's designed for you and I to be clothed differently than the world that's around us. He's asked us to do something different than the way the rest of the world functions. And he's going to describe for us in the text the attributes of a well-dressed Christian. This is what it looks like for a person who gets this right. Now, in, in the Jewish culture, there would have no doubt been some very clear distinctions, especially in the time of Christ, of what a person wore. Now, if you go to Israel today, you're going to see the Orthodox Jews. You see this in our, in our society as well. An individual who each of these items that he's wearing is intended to set him apart, to make him weird. They understand that they're dressing differently than the rest of us. And part of that is under the old covenant, there was a description of how you ought to dress in such a way that they take this so literally, the modern Jews do. Now you look at this, the phylactery, that's the, the, the scripture. There's scripture inside that box that's bound around his head and it's based on the, the statement that we ought to bind God's word to our hearts and minds. You can go through each of these things. Now, I'm not recommending that we start dressing like this, but what I'm recommending is that as it's described, the image of what we wear when it comes to the attributes ought to be intentional and it ought to make us be distinguished from the culture that's around us. This is harder than putting a fish on your bumper sticker. This is harder than wearing a Christian t-shirt. This is the attributes that God has asked you and I to, to, to wear as Christians. If you'll look with me in verses 12, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, you'll see it. He says, put on then as chosen ones by God, holy and beloved. He's already described us. He says this, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Look, have you ever noticed in the, in the church that you have to bear with one another? Um, nobody has. I have. I have. Lots of people have bared with me. That, that we bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you might also forgive. No, he says you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. Let me point out a few things that the text emphasizes that we ought to be putting on as Christ followers things that are different than the things that our culture is naturally putting on. The first one is a compassionate heart. 
This is a sensitivity to those suffering and in need. I think of the the Good Samaritan, that it talks about two religious people who were in a position of authority that saw the need of the, the man who was wounded, that had been robbed, that was broken. And, and the way the text describes it, it's like they'd almost just stepped right over him. They, they saw the problem and they figured that's somebody else's problem. But a person with a compassionate heart says, I can be a part of that. That's Jesus's heart, Right? that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, that he cared about the needs of the Samaritan woman that was rejected by her culture in those days, that he understood how to see people. That's what it means to have a compassionate heart, a sensitivity to suffering and those who are in need. The second is kindness, a warm disposition and thoughtful interpersonal dealings. We know what kindness looks like. We know when people are kind enough to hear our story, to listen to us. We also know what a lack of kindness looks like. If you're here last week, we talked about um, Winston Churchill and his ability to use his tongue sharply. I thought this was funny. George Bernard Shaw once wrote a letter to Winston Churchill saying, enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play, bring a friend if you have one. That's a a little harsh, right? Um, Bring a friend if you have one. So Winston Churchill's response was, "Um, dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I won't be able to make it. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. (laughs) I love that. I love that description. You know, you know, kindness, I've learned this in my life. I I have the tendency to, to wrestle with my tongue to keep it in check. And one of the things I've realized with, with kindness and what it means to be a kind person is that sometimes it's not what you say, but it's, or what you don't say, but it's what you say. It's when you say too much. And I think there's a component of this, of being someone who really says all of the kind things about a person to their face that you can, that you share the things that are in your heart with them, that you lift them up and And we know the power of words. We know that they can impact us. And so kindness is choosing to overlook an offense at times. It's it's the fruit of the spirit that it, it flows out of what it means to abide in Christ. And it is so important. A third thing for us to, this is fascinating, to clothe ourselves in is humility. The the way it's it's described is having a realistic view of myself. We know that that word was often used to describe the Lord Jesus, that he humbled himself on the cross, that he humbled himself, that he allowed himself to condescend is the way the word is written, to to be at our level. Humility means having just a realistic view of who I am. It's not putting burdens on other people's backs that I'm not willing to bear myself. Um, speaking of humility, this next one, we have a typo in the notes, and I apologize for that. It says, it, you need to, if you have your pen, you can scratch out the word not here. Meekness means behaving with consideration for others. This is not weakness, but it's instead saying, I consider your needs as more important that, that, than my own. Have you ever understood the description in Scripture that God says that I ought to love someone else like I love myself. Why is that so hard to do? To love someone else like I love myself. I have no idea if Jim's hungry right now. Are you hungry right now, Jim? A little bit. All right. So, so, so the, the reality is I, I know what's going on with me, 
because God wired me to be tapped into my central nervous system, right? It tells me when I'm hungry and when I'm tired and when I'm grumpy and when I need to get a nap. And it tells me that. But, but what he says to me, when he says to me that I need to learn how to love someone like I love myself, that's not about, oh, I like myself a lot. It's, it's about me understanding my needs and for me to say, I care enough about Jim to care about his hunger. Boy, I'm going to keep going with this, I guess. Huh? But you get it, right? That's hard. To, to have humility, to be someone who cares about someone else's needs, to be meek, it means that I have great consideration for the needs of others. That is not weak. People call that meek in our society, but it's actually one of the greatest strengths. It's power under control. That is not repaying evil for evil when you can, but instead it's taking the high road. Another clothing item that we're asked to put on is patience, long-suffering, self-restraining, another fruit of the spirit, a necessary ingredient of doing life together accurately. Did you hear that statement? That this Christian life requires patience because it's hard to do life together. And I love that that's in scripture, because God gets it. The apostle Paul gets it. That doing this, did you see what the text says? One of the versions of this is it literally bearing with one another. That's not a very nice thing to say. If you have to bear with someone, it's hard, right? It's challenging. It's complicated. Now, I will confess to you that I was a tough person to be a roommate with. One time at Cedarville, I went into my dorm room. Now, this is, Todd Crest was my roommate. He's one of my best friends from high school. We chose to attend college together. And Todd is sitting down on a bucket and he's eating out like the stalest pretzels that you've ever seen in your life. You could have bro broke your teeth on these things. And, and he's just eating away these nasty stale pretzels. And finally, I, I think I was supposed to get the point a lot earlier, but I didn't because those happened to be my stale pretzels. And, and he keeps eating these stale pretzels. And finally, I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he's like, well, you ate all my food and this is all that's left in our room. So, so he's, he's telling me it's terrible being my roommate. You can pray for my poor wife, right? That, that there's a part of this that, that we could tell story after story about. Sometimes as a, a marriage and family pastor and at the church uh, in, at Grace before, I see families come in, I see couples come in and they say, you know, relationships are terrible. Or, I, I married the wrong person or... I don't think, I don't think it's that, that the marriage relationship is always that complicated. I want to say it's every relationship is always that complicated. Brothers and sisters, cousins, friends, that relationships are hard. And so what he says to us, when he says that we ought to be people of patience, that we're long-suffering, we're self-restraining, this is a necessary ingredient of doing life together, that that we do it. Did you see the two things, the way we get patient? Now, again, I'm naturally extremely impatient. I, at the, at, on my refrigerator, the little water thing that distributes the water, it does not come out fast enough for me. If any of you want to come to my house and fix that for me, I'd love that. I drives me nuts. I, I get so impatient in the car. I, I do these, anybody relate to this? You know what, what he says to us when he says we ought to be people that bear with one another in love, he gives us this hint. He says, forgive like we've been forgiven. Way more important than the refrigerator is, is actually the words that the Lord Jesus interacted with the apostle Peter in. 
So Peter comes to Jesus and he says to him, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who has sinned against me? Do you guys remember this story? He says, no, it's so, I think sometimes we miss this when we, we study this, that he's saying, they sinned against me. They've done something that was so harsh that we could put it in the category of sin. They sinned against you. Peter is going to Jesus. I think Peter's a little smug in this. And he says, he says like seven times, because that sounds about right. You know, like there's the three strike rule and then there's the seven strike rule, right? And the Lord Jesus says, no, he says it ought to be 77 times or 70 time, um, 77 time, or 70 times seven. It's complex in the original Greek. But, but his point, it doesn't matter what that specific number is. He's saying it's, it's, it's kind of unmeasurable. You need to be somebody who forgives. But the way that you ought to be somebody who forgives, he says it through the lens of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to tell this tremendous story of forgiveness. He says that there was a man who owned, in the text it says like a gazillion dollars. We don't even have a number for it. It's a massive amount of money. And he, he goes, his boss comes to him and he says, you need to repay the debt. And the man says, I have no way of repaying it. He, he cries out to the mercy of the person he owns the gazillions to. And ultimately what, the, what that man says is, okay, your debts are forgiven. You've been completely set free. And then that same man goes back to someone who, it tells us that he owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii in that day was a hundred days wages. You do the math. I don't care if you work at Chick-fil-A. I don't care if you work for NASA. You do the math. A hundred days wages should probably add up to something substantial. If someone took that from you, you'd probably notice if it wasn't there, right? Um, I, would, I don't know if we get like amens, all right? So, so, so you get it. There's a number. So the man who'd been forgiven the gazillions goes back to the man who owes him the thousands and he, and he grabs him and he says, you must repay me now. And if you don't pay me, I'm gonna throw you in prison. And the people hear the story as Jesus is telling it as you go, that's not right because you just got forgiven so much. And Jesus uses this as an example. In fact, if you study that text well, he says there's a warning in this. If you don't forgive, then you don't understand what it means to have been forgiven by Jesus. If you don't forgive, you don't understand what it means to be someone. Read Matthew 18. It's profound through verse 35. That if you don't know how to forgive, you may not have understood the forgiveness of Christ because it is the forgiveness of Christ, which allows you, as it says in the text, if you look back with me in verse 13, it says, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. In some sense, he's saying pre-forgive them. That's a profound concept. As the Lord has forgiven you. You remember how the Lord forgave you? Do you remember what the Lord forgave you of? Do you remember that on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they're continuing to put him to death. So you must, not might, it's a good idea, I suggested. He says, so you also must forgive. And then he says this, and I, I don't know how this works. I, I think of Jesus with his, his uh, cloak and the, the belt around it. But he says, above all of those things, he says, bind them together with love. That this, is ought, this ought to be the thing that we clothe ourselves with in the most prominent way. 
I mentioned Tertullian earlier. David Jeremiah puts it this way, and I think it's awesome. He says, the true power of love is found in selfless attitudes and actions that seek the best for another person without expecting anything in return. When we act in that way, the feeling of love follows close behind. So, so when we say put on love, he's not saying you always feel like love. He's not always saying that you don't have reason to not like these people. He's not ignorant of the fact that living together with people like me requires patience. But what he's saying there is above all of that, bound it all together with love. It ought to be the most obvious attribute of the clothing that you've chosen to wear. Is, it, is, it the, is that your story? Is that what people see when they interact with you at work or at school? Sorry, kids, I know you're, some of you are geared up to go back to school and it's kind of a bad word to think about it. But is that the attribute that is most prominent on your clothing? as we strive to trump our vices with these virtues that the Lord has outlined for us. The attributes of a thoughtful Christian are these. It says this in verse 16. He says, thoughtful Christian, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is overflowing. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love this statement, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, I, I love the, the, the component of the matrix where he decides that he's going to download jujitsu and it's just downloaded and it's okay, now I know jujitsu. Wouldn't it be awesome if God's word worked that way, that we could just decide to load it on our operating system, but it doesn't. One of, one of the pastors that I so deeply respect in Southern California that I had the privilege of serving under, his knowledge of God's word was amazing. And I remember sitting in staff meetings and listening to sermons, and I remember just thinking, like, I wish I knew God's word that way. And it dawned on me, the more that I spent time with him, that that, that doesn't just happen because you wish it was that way. But instead, what he chose to do in his life is daily he encountered God. He saturated his life with God's word. And so there was a moment in the midst of all of this where he just got it. He just memorized it so much. And, and that's what he's telling us to do. So understand the truth of God's word, that God's word flows out of you. Let it richly dwell amongst you. You do that and it'll change your life. One of the ways that he says we do that is by teaching one another. And I, I like that, that that description gives me this image that sometimes I'm teaching someone and sometimes I'm the person who's in the audience listening. That I'm teaching one another. That means we're learning from each other, that, that we listen to each other. And, and that process is one that gives us the ability to grow in our walk with Christ. Speak the truth in love. When he says admonish in all wisdom, it means that we're willing to speak truth, even hard truths to one another. And it, I love the way that it, it overflows in worship. I love that the way it's described here as songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, if you know me, like love the idea of worship being a response, that this is like the volcano that erupts, that there's stuff inside that's coming out and it's not just singing a song, but it's the overflow of our heart. 
And this overflow of worship, as it's described here, is something that falls in unity, that it connects together with the kind of harmony that God desires for us to have. And I think that this is what he's asking of us. He's asking for us to to live in the way that Christ lived. This phrase in the text is quite fascinating to me. And I'm not quite sure that I understand what it means. He says, live in the peace of Christ. And I can't imagine the ability for the Lord Jesus to be able to stay on the cross, that he forgives the people who are persecuting him. And for him to say, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't whining or complaining that he was declaring a truth. But Christ modeled so many things in his life. His peace was courage under fire. His peace was never repaying evil for evil. His peace was seeking reconciliation. His peace was just the way he chose to live his life in plenty and in want. That his peace was that he chose to die on the cross so that I could enter into the presence of the living God through his sacrifice. I'm not quite sure what he means when he says live in the peace of Christ. But when he says it in verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says it again, and be thankful. Be an individual that is grateful. In verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here we get this last commendation. A whole sermon could be written on this, but I just want to put it like this. So So when you and I do something in Jesus' name, I think this is deeply misunderstood. When we do something in Jesus' name, it is is not, that's not the salutation of our prayer. It is actually our ability to say, if I could pray the prayer of Christ in this situation, what would Christ pray right now? If I could act like Christ, what would Christ do? This last week, I had one of the harder experiences of my life walking into Allie's cousin is in a very, he's very sick. He's um, in stage four cancer at Cleveland Clinic. Didn't know what I was walking into. But as I walk into that situation with family members that are hurting, it's a very painful moment. I remember just thinking, what would, what would the Lord Jesus Christ say to this man? What would the Lord Jesus Christ say to this bride who I had the privilege of marrying this couple a couple of years ago? What would Jesus want to say to this mom who wishes she could trade places with her son? And, and, it, and it helped me as I go into that to say, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. This is what it means to have the peace of Christ is that this is what it means for us to be people who do things in Jesus' name, that I'm an ambassador for Christ. Who cares if they forget my name after we interact together? What we hope is that they can go we encountered the living God, the God that loves us, that cares about us, that, that, that is compassionate, that like Lazarus is weeping with us in our, in our pain in the moments after Lazarus's death. I think that is what it means for you and I to be people who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It means that we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I keep saying this, but I think it's really true. If we get this right in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community, people are going to stand back like Tertullian and they're going to go, what is up with these people? Because it is so different than the rules of the world that we live in. 
In conclusion, I, I want to go back to Frank Abagnale Jr. And I want to remember his story, but I want to remind you of something. So Spielberg produced the movie um, that came out a couple of years ago. And somebody asked Frank about um, why, um, it was, why it took 20 years to actually tell the story of Frank Abagnale. And I, I love this quote. I'm just going to read it in its fullness. And I want to ask you the question that comes in the surface of this quote is, is simply, how are you living your life? What is the decisions that you're making? Have you turned from something that was good for something that's better. He says this, I was very blessed, this is Frank speaking, I was very blessed that it was Steven Spielberg who made the movie. He was very much into the redemption side of my story. And they asked him in an interview why he had owned the rights to this story for 20 years before he had made the movie. And he said, I wanted to see what the real Frank Abagnale did with his life before I immortalized him on film. I love that story. I want to just see what your story is. This has been in your rearview mirror, that stuff that we talked about last week, 11 things. Put them in your rearview mirror, but now put on the very attributes of Christ. You do that, and you're going to experience something that people would trade all of their wealth for in our society today, and that is you will experience peace. Lord, we love you, and we Thank you and praise you for your word that promises us that it will not return void. I thank you for each and every person that's here this morning that chose to chisel out an hour and a half of their life to be here today. And I ask for them that your voice would be crystal clear in their hearts and minds, Lord, that, that you are saying to them that you cherish them, that they can be unified with you. Lord, that you've chosen them. And I, I pray, Lord, today in this place that we would be people that are not just hearers of your truth, but that are doers. Lord, that we trade in the things that defined us at other times in our life for a new set of clothes. Think of, I think of the, the ability to walk into my chock full closet and to say I have nothing to wear. We've said that, we've said that and it's to our shame. But to be able to say the words of Peter, when he says that his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of you who called us. Lord, would that be the story of Hope Church and those who have the privilege of worshiping here? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.